Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Tara Stingley, a partner with Klein Williams in Omaha, Nebraska. On the program, we span the globe with updates on critical issues from ELA members in each region. Today, we're connecting with our member from Indiana. Joining us on the program is Manoli Balukas, a partner with Ice Miller. Manoli, welcome to the program. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us today. So baseball is described as America's pastime, but the contract negotiations between Major League Baseball and the Players Association have definitely brought a new meaning to this description, pastime, for baseball fans everywhere. We know that more than three months have passed since the players were locked out. The pitchers and catchers reporting date came and went unceremoniously. Negotiation deadlines were set, but passed. Opening day and the first week of games are now gone. And while fans would prefer studying the opening day roster of their favorite team, these negotiations have provided a really fascinating look at contract negotiations and labor relations for those of us working in the legal profession. So Manoli has joined us on the program to break it all down for us. We're going to be talking about the MLB negotiations. He's going to give us his perspective on the collective bargaining process and hopefully offer some insights about what employers in general can learn from the MLB negotiations. So Manoli, let's start here. What's the current status of MLB labor negotiations? Well, the good news is that the parties have been meeting and according to reports have been making some progress on the remaining issues. Unfortunately, As of last night, MLB announced that it would be canceling another week of games, pushing forward the earliest potential start to the season, according to MLB anyway, to April 14th. There's still several pretty contentious issues that are left open, and it's not clear exactly how those are going to get resolved. So for right now, I think fans and other observers are just hoping that there's a breakthrough sooner rather than later. So there's been a lot of discussion about lockouts versus strike. Can you talk to us about the difference in those terms and really what they mean in this context? Yeah, sure. So these are what are referred to in the labor law world as economic weapons. And a strike, of course, is, you know, when a a union, a group of employees withhold their labor to get concessions. And a lockout is sort of the employer version of a strike, where instead of withholding labor, the employer is withholding the ability to to work for them in order to gain concessions. One of the key differences with a lockout ordinarily is that the employer can only hire temporary replacement workers. They cannot permanently replace the workers they've locked out. When the lockout ends, they have to offer those locked out employees a return to work. Also, obviously, you know, one of the the differences from a public relations standpoint is, you know, who's responsible for the work disruption. And of course, you know, a union has to call a strike, but it's an employer's decision to lock employees up. And so what's happening here in MLB? Yeah. So in this case, back in December, and of course, this was well before the, you know, beginning of spring training and the beginning of the season, when the contract expired in early December, the owners officially locked out the players, which was interesting because, you know, normally a lockout means, you know, an immediate disruption to employment. But in this case, of course, 
the real effect on players is when the season starts and they start missing game checks. So in some ways, this was sort of mostly a symbolic, tactical decision on the part of the owners. So having said that, what are the key issues in dispute? What are the players and MLB really fighting about here? Yeah, so I think the biggest one that's been a big issue from the beginning has to deal with what's called the luxury tax. So in MLB, unlike some other sports, there's not a hard salary cap, meaning that clubs can spend as much as they want signing free agents. However, once they get to a certain threshold, then they have to pay what's called a tax. So the higher you get over that threshold, the more expensive it is for the clubs. The idea is that this is supposed to, from the owner's perspective, maintain a competitive balance. From the player's perspective, they'll say that this is ultimately about keeping salaries down. Now, there has been some progress between the sides in terms of increasing the threshold, which is something, of course, that the players want because they want more money there for salaries. But there's also a a new wrinkle to it, which essentially is sort of a heightened level of tax that kicks in when certain clubs are consistently spending over the luxury tax threshold, you know, clubs like the Dodgers or, or Yankees or, or maybe the Mets in, in the future. And that's a major sticking point. There are also a couple other issues, one of which is the owners would like to institute an international draft. Right now, you know, amateur players internationally are allowed to be signed directly by clubs. That means that those initial contracts can be pretty rich and there's quite a bit of competition over players, you know, from countries like the Dominican Republic and and Cuba, you know, the owners say that they want to institute a draft to make sure that the system is protected from certain kinds of corruption and, you know, manipulation of young players by agents and so on. And the players, again, would say that this is another way to to keep their costs down. So what happens if MLB and the union don't reach an agreement before the season's supposed to start? Yeah, so that's entirely up to the owners and the union. If they would like and this is the perspective of the players, at least what they're saying now, they could continue to work without a contract. There's nothing stopping them from doing that. So they could play games, continue with the whole season, basically under the terms and conditions that existed under the old contract. But obviously right now, the perspective of MLB, their position is that they're going to continue the lockout until there's a agreement reached between the parties, and they will continue to cancel games the longer it takes to get an agreement. Now, I think (laughs) that, you know, most of the coverage out there, media coverage has recognized that the cancellation of games is not a foregone conclusion. And certainly, you know, if the parties were to reach an agreement in the very near future, they certainly could decide to start the season as originally scheduled. Obviously, the longer this goes on, then it does become logistically more difficult to get those games in And at some point, you know, maybe you can push the season a week or two later, but obviously you're dealing with weather considerations once you get into the middle of November for baseball. Well, and this has real implications for players once you start canceling the games if the lockout continues. And we're talking about millions of dollars of lost compensation, I'm guessing. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, that's where it really, you know, where the players feel the sting is when they start losing game checks. Obviously, you know, the owners are losing money too when they're canceling games because they're losing, you know, ticket revenue and they're losing broadcast revenue and so on. But I think they're willing to gamble that the players are less willing to feel that pain than they are. 
So who do you think has more leverage or bargaining power in this situation? Yeah, well, right now, it seems like the owner's strategy in terms of negotiations is working. You know, my understanding is that the players have come off a lot of the positions that were important to them earlier in the negotiation. I think the the top one was getting to free agency more quickly than they do now, making changes to that system, because unlike a lot of other sports, there's really an extended period of time before young players can become free agents. And the players also see that the way that service time is calculated for free agency is often manipulated by clubs, for example, by taking very talented young players, playing them for a couple months, stashing them at, in the minor leagues for a couple months, and then bringing them back up for the, for the playoffs. But they really didn't get anywhere with that. And it looks like you know the owners are mostly getting what they wanted in terms of the negotiation, you know, whether in the long run it works out for the owners and for the sport and the business is another question. So one question someone from the public may have is at some point, if this continues to drag on and folks just want to watch baseball, can someone step in at some point and force both sides to be reasonable and to find common ground? They can try, you know, generally speaking, under the National Labor Relations Act, the duty of the parties is to negotiate in good faith. They're not required to reach agreement on any issue as long as they bargain in good faith. There's no deadline for when they have to reach an agreement. And there's nothing like a mandatory arbitration at the end at some point that decides who's right. Now, you know, in the past, presidents, President Clinton tried to step in and bring the, the last major labor disruption back in 1994 and 1995 to a close, but that was not effective. The parties could go to voluntary mediation, but essentially, unless there's some sort of legal issue that pops up that has an influence on the resolution of the dispute, there's really nobody who can force them to reach an agreement. And you know, during the last time this happened, there was an injunction issued by a federal court. In fact, it was now Justice Sotomayor, who was the district court judge at that time, what she really had decided was that you know the owners had to stop making unilateral changes to certain terms and conditions of employment. She did not directly order an end to the, the labor dispute or an end to the strike. Effectively, it gave the players some more leverage and helped bring it to a conclusion. But really, the answer to the question is, there's nobody who can force them to agree. They will agree when they agree. What lessons can employers and in other industries learn from the way that MLB has handled this dispute? Yeah. So I think there's sort of two aspects of this. The first is sort of the negotiations aspect and the legal aspect. And then there's the public relations aspect. Now, from a straight negotiation standpoint, I think some of the things that MLB has done has been pretty effective, right? They told the players that if they didn't get an agreement on time, that they were going to lock them out. They were very clear about sort of where the lines were for them. And they've mostly stuck to that. And that does seem to have worked from a negotiation standpoint. When you talk about the public relations aspect of this, which is particularly important for such a public-facing business, right? Because ultimately the fans are going to decide how much of an impact this is. I think MLB has done a pretty poor job locking out the players, you know, months before the beginning of the season. And then more recently, flip-flopping on, on deadlines, announcing deadlines, and then, and then not sticking to them. The commissioner gave a press conference last week in which he was sort of smiling and laughing, which I, I think didn't send the right message to the public. 
I think they've done a pretty poor job from a PR standpoint, particularly in the context of a society where the public feeling about labor unions is really different than maybe it was 15 or 20 years ago. Studies show, Gallup studies show that you know public opinion about labor unions is as high as it's been in many, many years, and particularly among younger people. And one of the greatest ongoing challenges for MLB for its future success is to grow and retain young fans, which is something they've struggled to do. And when they're dealing with younger fans who are more inclined to view organized labor favorably, in the long run, this could be really harmful. I hope not as a fan, but I think there is some risk there. And don't worry, I won't ask you to disclose what team you root for. <laughs> well, I'd be happy to. I'm a Red Sox fan. I grew up oh, in Boston. No. I could walk to Fenway <laughs> from my house. Go Royals. That's all I'll say. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, what other recommendations do you have for employers in this context of balancing the desire to win in negotiations versus the PR component? Yeah, I think, you know, the most important thing is to have a plan, right? To know what the alternative is to getting an agreement and understanding before you get to that point what the consequences of that decision are likely to be and how you are going to bring that message to the public, to your customers when you get to that point. I also think that if you are in an industry that's going to particularly get a lot of media coverage, you should recognize now that the media is a lot more savvy about labor relations issues. They understand them better than they did in the past. And some of the things you might have been able to get away with previously, you're going to get called out on. So I think the right approach, it's okay to be firm. It's good to be firm, but you should also need to be transparent because if you say things that are easily picked apart, you end up looking like you're not a trustworthy source of information, which in the long term, I think can be pretty damaging. That's great advice. Well, Manoli, this has been a fascinating discussion. We'll continue to update our listeners on any new developments, and we hope the MLB will be playing ball soon. Thanks for joining us on the program. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. If you'd like to connect with Manoli, please click on his bio in the description of this podcast. We also encourage you to reach out to any of our lawyers around the world by selecting Find a Lawyer on the ELA website at ela.law. You can also search ELA website, or you can sign up to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars download white papers and on-demand content from our online library, or access the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Tara Singley. Thanks so much for listening.